I wouldn't say, I would say no right now. I think back to our AI conversation when you get some real weird shit, like when it's like AI seems super, super human, that's going to be some something scary. I think right now, the competitiveness of entrepreneurship, I think is what, and that may not be the answer everyone expects to hear, but just the competitiveness, because what everybody thinks is that, you know, okay, let's start a company. And that's like the new trend nowadays is let's start a company. You ask people five years ago, there were half as many entrepreneurs as there is today. We can start a new app. We can do a new this. We can do a new that. And what happens is it becomes such a highly populated thing to do is to start a company. So within each vertical, there's going to be a lot more regurgitation and, and founders are going to have to think really hard on how to differentiate scale and have better margins and competitors and just have a better product in general. And, and it's going to force us as an ecosystem to think a lot harder of what actually makes a good investment or what is a good company to start if I were a founder. Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about today's show sponsor, Carta. Carta simplifies how startups manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. Go to carta.com slash syndicate to get 10% off and learn more about how they can help you with managing your complicated cap table and keeping investors happy. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome to The Syndicate, the show where we get the most interesting and influential investors talking about where the tech world is headed. Today, we've got Sumay Parikh on the program. Am I saying that right or totally wrong? You're, you're, you're close to it. It's Sumai. Sumai. It's hard when your name is Matt that it's so easy. You got to try a little bit harder. Sumai, thanks for coming today. No problem. Thank you for having me on, Matt. The Quake VC, New York City. How did, how did you get here? What do you guys focus on? So we're uh, just a quick background on our fund. Um, we were started by two, three founding partners, Glenn Argenbright, Brandon Meyer, and Chad Burgess. Glenn Argenbright is our general partner, and he is a startup and uh, com- uh, company exec veteran himself. He's had nine exits and three IPOs. So it's very rare you meet people like that. And I have the uh, privilege to work under people like that and learn their thought process. He wanted to get back in the game of working with uh, early stage startup founders. You know, didn't want to really work with publicly traded companies as a CEO anymore, sold a bunch of his own as, as I was talking about. And he thought of a great way of doing it was running a VC fund and an accelerator with that as well. And so with that being said, they launched two years ago, they launched a $5 million fund. I co-founded a company out of that fund and the, the net IRR gains on that fund were phenomenal. And from there, we were able to successfully raise a second fund for $20 million, um, which we just closed out. And now we're on our third fund, shooting for a $100 million raise. On the, second, on the second fund, we decided to expand our accelerator and our investments throughout Austin and LA. And we successfully opened up an accelerator program in LA as well. And Austin still is a testing ground. And from there, we've made great exits. I think it was a great, great move for us to get into both of those ecosystems. I think especially LA being that, you know, it's still growing with more VCs emerging and more startups emerging and the market's starting to mature a lot more. So that's quick capital in a nutshell. We are seed stage investors. We'll take a few pre-seed investments. Uh, Typically, the companies have to generate some type of traction, have some type of MVP or inflection point. I got my start into the fund. Um, I'm a principal here. I got my start into the fund by uh, moonlighting for the fund as I was running a company with my CEO. 
I was introduced to the team, the founding team by the CEO I was working with, and I just had really good synergies with them. And I wanted to roll my sleeves up, learn more about venture and investing and apply what I knew from my operating experience and from a lot of the business failures I've had in the past. I'm only 28, but uh, I, I, I do have somewhat of a, an extensive experience, um, got into operating after college. And so adding that expertise, building out the venture capital network, working with other funds where, where it was you know, sourcing deal flow and syndications allowed me to accelerate my growth process. And that's how I got into VC. And I've been here full time for about a year now. There's a lot to unpack there, but first, nine exits and three IPOs. Did this yeah. guy found all of those companies? What in God's name is in his water? First exit was at 28. It was a Lehman IPO for, I think, around four point something billion dollars. So, uh, and that's way back when ad tech was like just emerging. So, him having one of the first ad platforms ever was uh, really impressive. So, he's, he founded all nine of those businesses. He founded a portion of them, and then some he came to as COO or CEO, and then some were publicly traded large companies as well. That's still quite in, an impressive portfolio. I imagine working with somebody like that is, uh, you get intimidated at all? I mean, you're the 28-year-old in the house, right? Slightly intimidated. We have a younger fund. A lot of respect, I would say that. Not so much intimidation, but more about just keeping my mouth shut and not being an idiot and learning as much as I can and, and seeing where I can provide value to him and the rest of my team, especially my team here in New York my colleague, Abby Lau, and my managing partner who decided to bring me in full-time Amy Company as well. She's been a part of uh, nine operating companies and a few of them have IPO'd. Um, and she's been a part of the ops, the growth and the sales side of those companies. So she's seen a lot of fires and a lot of successes at the same time. And it's uh, truly a privilege to work under her as well. And um, learn from Abby. She's super sharp. Uh, not many VC hires straight out of college in their undergrad. And she's one of the few that has done so and is doing phenomenally well at what she does. That's part of the reason I wanted to get you on is because everyone listening to this podcast is either a VC in private equity, wanting to get into VC or running some type of startup and of course, looking for money. But a lot of people will want to get into VC. And uh, you're 28, you're at a, at a firm that seems to be growing pretty well over the course of the last couple of years. And I wanted to get your impact or your input into how do other people do that? Is venture capital still something that's accessible? Is it becoming more? Is it becoming less? How do you read it? Um, I mean, it's you're seeing a lot more VC funds emerging. And so people are either moving to work for the big shops if they can get qualified to work for them. Or they can, it's either that or they're pretty much starting their own VC fund or working for a micro fund. And, and you're seeing a huge division in that um, lately. I wouldn't say it's still super easy to get into. It's still relatively challenging. Again, it's an inner network. No massive, I don't want to name funds, but like no massive fund, I think we can think of them off the top of our heads, but is going to put a job listing out and be like, hey, we're looking for an analyst or an associate or a principal or partner. It's just a very embedded network. And so there's still some difficulty or challenges getting in. The barrier is a, a slightly less than before. And so even the trend in New York is you're starting to see many venture funds pop up that have raised 5 to $10 million. These are test funds, right? I don't think many will admit it, but they're test funds. And, and their job as new GPs is to build a phenomenal track record. And then obviously, they can successfully raise further rounds, fund one, fund two, fund three, and so forth. So again, that's I think that's really the trend, um, speaking for New York and, and LA, is the emergence of a lot more VC funds. And, and a lot more people can get access to those funds. When a lot of kids in the neighborhood run a test, let Lemonade stand, eventually it gets bloated. There's too many lemonade stands. Are we getting to that point in VC now? Not yet. We will. 
the again markets maturing the i i i do i do think and again of course we're recording a podcast so i say this lightly but i do think we're we're going to be heading into a bear market soon where i it's look more the dollar is going to be tightening up people are going to want later stage investments because of risk adversity and the the economic cycle the portion of the cycle we're in at least and there's just going to be a lot of blow ups during that and for the funds that sustain and, and have a good harvest zone and can get a good track record, they're investing and they know the right companies to invest in. So with experience, I think the, the funds that don't have much, much experience at their stage of investing will, will really be weeded out and few will get lucky and survive. Yeah, that makes two of us. And this is December 2018 for anyone who wants a timestamp on this. Uh, the ecosystem's definitely changing. And with uh, with some of these massive funds, especially we've got our we've got our $100 billion vision funds. How has that shaken things up for you? You kind of got started into this once all the funds were becoming superhumanly large. It's interesting. So if I'm in the Midwest, I know my ecosystem's not as mature as if I were in New York. LA is starting to mature a lot more now. Where we sit in the stage, we're we're figuring, we're always innovating and, and sharpening our investment thesis. And as the markets move forward, we're going to make better decisions on better founders who can sustain through that economic. It's not going to be a 2008 economic collapse, but sustain through that, re- that recession cycle, the average business cycle. And the ones that can, I think those are the best investments at an early stage. So it really depends a lot on, yes, there's the maturity of the company, but it's also the it's the capabilities of the founder, tenacity, agility, grit. These are many things that are going to predicate whether a founder can get through these rough times and they're able to innovate. And then that, again, um, trickles into making a good investment. We're at seed stage. So we're going to have to be a lot more sharpened and focused on sharpened and focused on where we make our investments in our bets because of the upcoming bear market for sure. What's that thesis you guys have and how's it changed? I mean, we I going back to the main point, I think we really focus on the founder and we're a founder first fund and an accelerator. We're not here, we're not in the business of just unicorn hunting and churn. We're in the process of we really take a deep dive with the founder. We work with them as business partners and we say, hey, you know, can you get through these tough times? And how are you going to navigate these challenges? And then working with them as their business partner, not only just an investor, we're able to see how they're able to navigate challenges now. And that could be a good prediction of how they'll be able to maneuver um, towards the near future. What's the accelerator structure look like? And do you think more VCs are going to start or should start adopting a similar model? I don't think it's for everyone. If you have a clear vision on an accelerator and you're able to dominate, then an accelerator is worth starting because it's a business model in itself. The accelerator structure is where you invest in pre-seed or seed typically, and you take them through a three-month program where you're really hands-on helping them with go-to-market strategy, helping them get to product market fit or a good MVP, helping them get some repeatability within their sales process or their growth, helping them either with their product or their tech stack, the right sizing of it, um, and then helping also with business development, opening doors, making introductions to other investors that are in your inner network or strategic partners, maybe at large enterprise companies where they can pilot or maybe sign on. So it's a more hands-on extensive process. And through that, we focus on really accelerating the business in two to three months and typically what they would be doing in about 12 to 16 months or 18 months. And from there, at the end of the accelerator program, we take them to a demo day, which is a, a typical thing within an accelerator. Many accelerators have different versions of demo days where it's, some are laser focused with your mattress specific and investors and you meet and some are pitching on stage. We're going to be moving towards both. We're, we, we currently do the pitching on stage version. Um, our first demo day had about 100, 200 people, not much. And now our last 
last demo day, I had about around five to 600 people. And so the brand equity and everything has been growing phenomenally. And that's been able to attract um, more quality VCs, investors, mentors, and advisors to these to these demo days. And, and so for anyone starting the accelerator model, they need to be brand conscious and they need to understand how they're going to uh, differentiate from their other competitors. Similar to if I were to sell an enterprise solution in a populated market, how am I going to differentiate? I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, or startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full-service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com syndicate. Do you guys have a specific industry or vertical that you're most focused or excited about? We're agnostic. And the cool thing about our fund is that everybody has a different operating background. We're industry agnostic. Again, what we do, what me, I can primarily speak on myself. I can't speak on others. Um, I'm very, like a lot of investors, I'm very B2B enterprise SaaS software focused type investor. I understand B2C, but I'm learning it more and more. We even take hardware at some points and some of them are doing quite well actually at the stage they're in. But that's that's really the um, current landscape of what we do. We're agnostic generally. We talked about the saturation of VC, but what about the saturation specifically of B2B SaaS? I feel like everybody and their mother has tried to focus on B2B SaaS. So if you look at some VCs are generalists, some have focuses, and almost every one of those ones, even if they has a focus, the, the B2B SaaS play is there. It's kind of Andreessen's software is eating the world. We've known that for a while. Are we starting to get towards the tail end of when software is truly eating the world as an investment? Uh, I mean, the growth of software is still there. The growth, of, the growth of software investments is still there. So there's still going to be a steady growth. But then there's other technologies emerging. 5G is a huge one. Can you imagine how many people are going to be trying to, be, trying to build on a 5G application, what they're going to do? Blockchain outside of crypto, because I don't like talking about crypto, but blockchain itself, as there's a proper way to do due diligence on blockchain and there's actual applications five to 10 years down the road, that's going to be emerging market. I think everyone knows that, but I think 5G is a huge thing. SaaS will be tied around that. SaaS will be tied around blockchain as it is right now and other emerging markets as well. But I, I think it's very metric, metric focused, I think, as the competition keeps growing. You're modified? Seeing, yeah, I mean, it's like you see a lot of SaaS companies and then you're like, hold on, are you an enterprise solution or are you a feature to an enterprise solution that you just built a product around? You're one feature, right? And you're starting to see that. Look at MarTech or AdTech, right? A lot of it's consolidated because a lot of companies have done well building a feature, not a bit, a full-on company enterprise SaaS company. That's one portion of it. And then metrics, right? I think in terms of VCs at later stage, they know this market's populated, right? So for them, and this has always been the case, but I think more now than ever, they're going to see, look, 
is there going to be, what are your metrics, right? What are the margins and are we going to have a good exit on this at the end of the day? And this is, is this the right business partner and founder we're going to work with? I think that's going to be a lot more important than ever. And it's going to be harder for new coming SaaS founders to do so even, but that doesn't only apply to SaaS. We look at so many deals at early stage that are trying to do the same thing. And there's so much regurgitation on the market. Look at marketplaces. That's another thing, right? What is the next level of marketplaces, right? And I think that's going to be an important thing. I don't truly know the question because I'm not a full marketplace investor. B2C consumer, right? Like I was scrolling through Instagram the other day and you're, get, you're getting hyper-targeted ads for everything, right? And you click on one ad and then you go back and you start to see the behavior change where it's 10 different companies, same product. Look how much more complicated it's getting, right? And with competition, the amount of companies starting, the regurgitation, it seems like these are more small businesses that are digitized rather than venture-backed business. And that's where I think metrics and margin and matters and scale and whether it's a venture-backed software company or marketplace or whatever it may be. Does SaaS evolve to be more PE or private equity focused as it becomes less and less about home runs? Yeah. If it's coming to margins in later stage, it's definitely going to be more private equity focused. I mean, look in, if you look at the activity right now, look at uh, Twilio, look at SendGrid, look at Qualtrics, they're getting, they're getting acquired all in the span of two to three months or billions and billions of dollars, right? People know that these, these SaaS or marketing, MarTech enterprise companies know that they want to consolidate. They want to buy as many software companies that are massively large and acquire their ecosystems and then use their capabilities and their inputs. I think it's super, I think that's exactly what's happening is that later stages, private equity shifting more to software. You're seeing, look, if you look at the acquisitions, they're all large acquisitions. Yeah, they're, they're enormous. And as it becomes more consistent and less upside, then maybe we start to see less large-scale VC on larger software deals. Yeah, for sure. I, I think also it's, it, it's ecosystem by ecosystem. I'm still bullish on SaaS right now. My mind can change in two years, but I, I think the market is still continuing steadily to grow. And uh, again, as, as Andreessen says, it's software east the world right now. So, I mean, you're going to see more asset light driven businesses, whether they're a hub for people to meet or whether they're just going to help you have better workflow management and make your life easier. Convenience, I think, is a thing of the next generation. If software can apply that, then I, that's where it goes. Yeah, software is eating the world and AI is eating software. It's kind of getting injected into everything, whether or not it is true AI or just simple simple optimization. It, there's a lot of hype, but there's also a lot of potential. Speaking of that, right, I, I, I love that you brought up AI, right, or blockchain, quote unquote, like people pitch these things, right? But it's like when you're, what, what, what founders don't get is like, okay, I'm pitching AI, right? And, or I'm pitching blockchain. But when they're sitting across the table from another investor and that investor may know AI phenomenally well, right? They may even have a PhD on an AI, right? On AI applications and stuff like that. And what they could be, excuse my language, but bullshitting their way to what their technology really is. Is it automation or is it really AI, right? Or is it, you know, like I, I, I think with, there's just so many buzzwords going around, but the depth in tech still has to be uncovered with a lot of these early stage companies as they grow forward. And do they have real AI? Is it only automation? Is it only a workflow process that's getting built, right? Because I think people mix and match terms and, and sometimes don't really have the transparency around what their tech stack does or what their applications really do. I would agree with that, but I also think it's a tough, it's a tough thing to target on because today's AI is tomorrow's automation. We just change the term continuously. Eventually we'll have full, we'll have fully autonomous robots and we'll, we'll call it automation. We won't call it artificial intelligence because technically it won't be thinking it'll have some type of system it's running through. Correct. And I think the world will be really scary when that happens. 
<laughs> oh, it will definitely be scary. Speaking it's of, crazy, though, because like AI, like we're just on the brink of AI, right? Like we, like its capabilities are just so much farther we haven't even discovered yet. Like it's nuts. Now, speaking of buzzwords, Amazon just released a new product, quantum ledger technology. So it is quantum. It's a quantum blockchain, whatever that means. Yeah, um, that's bad. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of fluff out there. What about 10, 20 years out? What are you most excited about and the people around you? I haven't had a vision for 10, 20 years out to be completely transparent. I think maybe three to five years out. And I think for me that the three to five year mark is finding sustainable businesses that are able to survive through economic times and later stage investments as well, just because the market is maturing. But in terms of really where the growth is, and um, I can't really disclose much, but again, we're, we are excited around 5G and other applications that are going to get built around that. So I think around when the market keeps maturing around there, just because it's so new, there's going to be a lot of different growth, kind of similar to the boom the internet has. You're going to see a lot of more different innovation from there and then more applications. And then that'll become a complex web as well. Have you heard a working definition of 5G? It's kind of just a pie in the sky term that doesn't seem to mean something at this point. Uh, just faster results on something to this point. Okay, so fa- faster internet with a hypey buzzword. Yeah, pretty much. That's why we're, we're we're trying to and we're trying to ponder around now with earlier stage. We haven't done any investments in 5G yet, but we're trying to ponder around and see, hey, where is innovation going? Where can we cap on it? Where do we see the trend moving towards? It's more just for studying purposes, not for investing purposes by any means. But it's it's interesting to see that that's the emerging application that, again, Verizon, T-Mobile, and a bunch of others are working towards. Or at least say they're working towards so they can keep the monopolies. I'm always a little bit skeptical of those companies, especially considering the whole net neutrality deal. Yes, yes. That's a a scary thing too, for sure. Yeah, they don't fulfill on their promises. Our house is a freaking dead zone. How is that possible in today's era? But that that said, what uh, what scares you about the future? Are, do you see any startups, any technology that just it makes you cringe or worry? I wouldn't say I would say no right now. I think back to our AI conversation when you get some real weird shit, like when it's like AI seems super superhuman. That's going to be some something scary. I think right now the competitiveness of entrepreneurship, I think, is what, and that may not be the answer everyone expects to hear, but just the competitiveness because what everybody thinks is that, you know, okay, let's start a company. And that's like the new trend nowadays is let's start a company. You ask people five years ago, there were half as many entrepreneurs as there is today. We can start a new app. We can do a new this. We can do a new that. And what happens is it becomes such a highly populated thing to do is to start a company, start a company, start a company. So within each vertical, there's going to be a lot more regurgitation and and founders are going to have to think really hard on how to differentiate scale and have better margins and competitors and just have a better product in general. And, And it's going to force us as an ecosystem to think a lot harder of what actually makes a good investment or what is a good company to start if I were a founder. Yeah. If you're focused on differentiation and margin, you're not building a scalable business. You're building an iterative business that can be valuable, but is hard to make venture economics work. And oftentimes, isn't that meaningful for the world? I feel like I see that a lot with entrepreneurs is everyone's making the next photo sharing app, the next way to get something delivered to your house slightly faster. I feel like entrepreneurs aren't solving as many big problems now because they're so focused on smart. uh, Essentially, they're so focused on mobile and uh, in a lot of ways, software, software solving problems that are problems, but they're not important problems. They're just margin problems. Does that make sense? Makes 100% sense. I think another thing, I love you brought that up. I think another thing is them not solving the large problems is, are they in it really just for the money or is it really truly the process of building something that's sustainable long-term, that actually makes impact long-term, not just like the next uh, 
here, I'll pick your clothes up at one click of a button kind of thing, but something that really sustains. That's the problem I see right now with VC and startups is both of them have not necessarily lost their way, but just the incentive structures aren't, aren't quite right. We used to get excited about putting a man on the moon and now we're excited about a new iPhone. Yeah. And, and then we find out that that's because they slowed down your old iPhone when they launched it. It's a, it's a different type of incentive and a different type of excitement that is just less meaningful. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's like, um, it's hard to find something where it's like, hold on, this is actually life changing. And this will, this is not something where it's like, we're worried about the IP or the exit, but it's like, this is going to sustain and be here really long term and affect people and affect people after that and affect people after that. It's really less of that. It's all about just like, yo, let's start a business and make money. Like that's really the mindset. I think it's VC's fault, actually. I think the 10-year time structure, uh, cycle structure for a fund inevitably sets you up so that you have to be thinking on on time horizons where at max, you've got 12 years. And if at max, you've got 12 years and you've got to have up rounds, it makes it almost impossible to solve the really big problems. Partially, I think I think the investors that know that they can sit on the cash long-term and make huger, huger impact bets are able to do that. And then the there's the good amount that are like, hey, we have to have an exit and carry to make money on our fund. And and again, it gets back to that war between entrepreneur and VC of like, this is a money making thing. This is not a sustainable thing type thing. I think, I think you can have both, but it depends on the, it depends on the funding. So like, I would like to see a 20 year fund, a 50 year fund, a hundred year fund. And obviously that doesn't work with the way that the, the, the two and 20 is set up right now. The right. Two, two, two and 20 is very bloated, I think. But in, in terms of the way the incentives are set up right now, it's very much, you need those exits. You need to have the, you need to have the carry. That's why Benchmark was suing Uber among other reasons is they have to land the biggest plane ever. Otherwise yeah. they're screwed. Yeah. Then the, then the LPs don't get their money back. The fund breaks even or it doesn't do anything. They wasted all their years, all their resources, all their efforts. It's it, VC com- and, and to that point, right? It's like VC is becoming uh, a lot, a lot, a lot more competitive. As we're talking more startups, we're saying to the beginning point is that more VCs nowadays, it's a lot more competitive. <laughs> so um, it's a question is, right? I, and, and maybe you you know this, but I mean, I, I certainly don't know the answer today, but how to differentiate, right? How to be a good VC that's founder first. I think a lot of our thesis has been on founder first and, oh, you've turned out to be a crappy investment. We're not going to help you anymore. We're not, we don't do that. But how to be founder first and then again, how to differentiate it. Two different questions forever, forever asking. I would kind of come back to that same answer for SaaS though. If you're thinking about differentiation and margin, you're already playing and uh, you're already playing a percentage improvement game. You're not playing something that is exponentially better. It's not a stepwise better. It's it's marginally better, five to ten percent, not five to ten x. Yeah, I think, for sure. I think I mean, and I'm I'm guilty of playing in that space too, right? Because again, in in venture, we make investments, we we act as business partners, we help them up. We're founder first, so we help them navigate through their fires, which is extremely important. If a founder were to call me up two in the morning on the phone and be like, "This is what I'm going through," I should be able to effectively walk them through the process or be resourceful enough to point them the right way to get them the answer. But at the same time, we're we're in that we're in that same betting game of like, "Hey, this is the exits; these are the carries we make as well," and and then try to differentiate from there and, and be as good as possible as we can be to the founders. So slightly guilty, but same time also it's it's a forever thinking question of like, how do we come better and invest in more sustainable businesses? It's still it's still a hundred times better than the stock market where you've got the ticker running every microsecond and people are optimizing. So this is this is a big part. I, I run a second podcast, the disruptors, and it's mm-hmm. focused much more on the the exponential tech and where we're headed. 
excited. If you guys mm-hmm. like this, disruptors.fm, you should check it out. But I mean, with the stock market, they've done polls. I think it was Fortune 100, but it might have been Fortune 500. Mm-hmm. And something like 60 to 80% of the CEOs said they'd forego investing large sums of money in guaranteed long-term growth if it meant that the essentially the profits were better uh, over the short term. And that's how the incentives work. So VC is still exponentially better than that. It's just we might need to, I think we might need to change the fund st- structure a little bit to, to accommodate for some of the more transformational stuff. I, I and, and would love your thoughts on this as well. But, you know, after the after the bear market cycle is done and we're ramping up again, I mean, do you have any thoughts on how you see VC going afterwards? Do you think they'll they'll realize that we need more sustainability type investments or more impact type investments? Like, where do you see this going? I think you would probably need some VCs and some LP. So like Musk has got a hundred billion dollar fund now. It doesn't matter if he breaks even. It doesn't matter if he loses money. He's making like $2 billion a year in management fees. That is ridiculous. Uh, I think I think that is a big driver. The the two and twenty nature of how the how it's set up. I don't know if you'll get the longer term funds. I think for certain things, biotech, pharma, longevity, space. I think some of these farther out technologies would be would be super valuable. So like if you look at asteroid mining, if you look at anything in space, it's kind of a chicken and the egg problem. We know we're headed there. The question is when. In VC, you have to be right and you have to get the timing right. What happens if you had a longer time horizon? You have a much better chance of being right then. Right. That, that, and I don't know if we get there. I don't know if that's idealistic. I, of course, it's idealistic, but I don't know if it's achievable. But I think it's something interesting to, to talk about and consider. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, of course, it's very theoretical right now. Um, and I think as we get closer to that, we're, we're able to make better judgments. But that's something I haven't even thought about. So that's pretty cool that you brought that up about space and then how we can dive into that. Sumai, I got I got two last important questions for you. First, you're you're not the new guy, but you are relatively young at a VC firm in a job that a ton of people would kill for. Mm-hmm. What have you learned from that? And what can other individuals that are either earlier stage at a at a VC, not an early stage VC, but they've gotten more recently into the game or are wanting to get into the game? What have you learned that you can share with them and how they can learn more to to grow in the industry and be successful? It's a it's a dog eat dog competitive game. And while there is karma and people are friendlier than most industries, it is still something where there's only so many positions. What have you learned? How do you take advantage and what can other people steal from you? I think the hugest thing I've learned is you don't know everything. You don't know everything about where this market's going. You don't know if your investment thesis is going to be a thousand percent right all the time. I don't think that's talked about enough. It's the, I think the main thing is humility. I've learned humility. If I don't know, I will go study it. I will go ask my personal mentorship network of general partners. What are your thoughts on this? How do you see this going? Even if it's a fire I have to put out, or even if it's a personnel issue, or even if it's an investing thing, I would be like, hey, I don't know my way around this. Can you help with this? I'm still learning. I think that's the biggest lesson I learned is humility. I think in VC, we kind of get into this whole thing of like, and I'm not saying this is everybody by any means, but we get into this whole thing of like, I'm a VC, I know it all. I know where your business is going. I can 100% all the time. Like That's just not the truth. Uh, We're all learning. I learn every day. I intensely learn every day. That's for sure. Whether it's through reading textbooks, talking to people, talking to founders, talking to other VCs and and going through deal flow. I learn every day. And and I, I don't come with the assumption that I'm sure as hell right. I come with the assumption of where can I learn? This is my thought process, but I'm open to feedback and seeing where my blinders are. I think that's the biggest thing. I think the second thing is value add, right? I'm a younger VC, regardless of me being 28. I know associates that have worked in much larger firms that are 29 and 30, not going to mention the names, that I'm very close to and that I love dearly um, and that are freaking sharp. And they're still learning every day. I think I learned it from that, right? I think age is one thing, but coming into it, it's it's 
starting with developing a personal investment thesis of where you want to go and then reiterating on that um, over time, kind of as the founder started a product and reiterated on that until he found what worked for her or him or she found for her, he found for him. Those are the main two things. And, and the third thing I would say is value add, right? I think it's give, 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 and then ask if you need to. If you don't have an ask, cool, you just did it out of, you just did it out of respect and you did it out of, hey, like no problem, like just want to establish a relationship with you. I think when you're giving at 5x, sorry for being very metric driven, <laughs> Uh, but I think if you're giving at 5 to 10x, your return or ROI on that, which should have zero expectation behind it, will be 3 to 4x. And so as you, turn, if, as you learn to give more, you have a lot more open space to um, leverage yourself, your personal brand, and the VC you work for. I think those are the three things for sure. And I think the most important thing that you didn't bring up there is you'll be happier. So studies show, science show, everything shows the more you do for other people and the less you're focused purely on yourself, you just are a happier, healthier person. You live longer. So irregardless of how your returns do, there's plenty of VCs out there that would love to not feel like shit, live longer. God, we have Peter Thiel. He's popping other people's blood in there all the time. And that's all the rage in different areas of Silicon Valley is doing whatever you can to be healthier, happier. Well, being a, being a helpful person is one of the best ways to do it. Being grateful and being friendly. I think, I think you seem like a pretty friendly guy. I imagine, I imagine the age gives you a little bit of advantage working with some founders because you're not the, you're not the old white guy like they've seen in every other, every other boardroom. They can relate to you a little bit more. I think and, uh, that like speaking about that too, Matt, right. Um, you're right. I think the most important thing is happiness and it's, it's, it's stupid that I actually didn't mention that, but that's, I think the main thing of it is that when you give, I mean, just the effects of that are that you, you do or you become naturally happier and you become, you subconsciously become just a giving human being where if what I realized is I've had being, I'm still developing some self-awareness, right? And I think everybody is to a, whatever extent, but the more I, the times I focused on what's in it for me, what's in it for me, the outcome never came. On top of that, more importantly, I was always sad and miserable as hell, right? But then when I focused on, like you said, happiness comes from just giving. I, when I just focused on how much value can I give this person, I just became a lot happier. And that person, you know, solved their issues because of that, because it wasn't about the selfish endeavor that was really behind the scenes. It was just, okay, let me help this person. And it helped them. And, and seeing that change in them, they figured out a solution from it, I think pays off a lot more dividends than anything else, truly. And making people happy is a great way to be successful. Look at Apple, they'll sell you the same thing, but it makes you happy because of the branding. I think uh, I think we're getting to a decent place to wrap this up, especially considering the, the technological difficulties. Come on, Google, you own the world. Let's at least get Hangouts working. But uh, this, has been, uh, this has been a lot of fun. I know you run a podcast. I know you've got some stuff going on. Where's the best place for people to find you, Samai? Um, I'm primarily, as, as it is speaking, I think the podcast is The Unsexy Startup. You can find it on iTunes or wherever you listen, Spotify. Finding me, um, you can just reach out to me on LinkedIn, Samai Parikh. And that's pretty much it. And I'm on Twitter at Samai, uh, S-U-M-A-Y, and then the number one. And of course, guys, links and all that in the show notes, the syndicate.vc. Reach out, check out the podcast. And yeah, thanks for coming on, Sumai. It's been an interesting one, fun one, a little bit different, but I think valuable because a lot of our listeners will be either be in your shoes or wanting to get there. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate you taking the time to have me. Come on, Matt. Yeah, sweet. And cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc join and get access to some of the best startup deals. 
This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.